Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have a lot of dreams. I'm a dreamer. As a child, I used to dream a lot of what I wanted to be when I grew up, where I would live, how my life would be. And even in my 20s, I continued to have such dreams, dreams of my future with hopes and aspirations. I also, in the past couple of years, have learned that I also have a very vivid dream life at nighttime. Now, you may think, haven't you known that all along? Well, I have, but I thought everybody had as many dreams as I have. But it's not true. We dream different amounts. And I am a hyper-dreamer. My dreams, as I started to realize, speak very loudly to me when I allow them to. And they can bring me great joy and great distress, sometimes throughout the rest of the day. Of course, sometimes the dreams don't make any sense at all. Some of you are in dreams that have nothing to do with East Chestnut Street, and, well, you know, you know how dreams are so crazy. But sometimes they do make sense when I take time to stop. And I've been intrigued with how many people in the Bible have dreams and how God speaks to so many people in the Bible in their dreams Dreams can be confusing, they can be comforting, they can be entertaining, and perhaps even life-changing. And I've had a few such life-changing dreams, nighttime dreams, in the last decade or so that have been life-changing. And I've learned through the help of my spiritual directors to pay attention to my dreams, just as many biblical characters did. But my dreaming of late hasn't been very fruitful. Neither my dreams at night nor my daydreaming. I haven't been spending time dreaming about my future that I used to do. And so this series of sermons, this worship experiences over the next few weeks has highlighted this to me. I'm not sure why. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that many of my dreams as a child have not turned out as I expected them to do. Some of them have turned out better. Some of them have turned out dramatically different. And some dreams have not come to fruition at all. So the desire to dream has been hindered in my life by some sense of disappointment. But over the past few weeks... As I thought about our series for envisioning the future of East Chestnut Street, I told myself it's time to start dreaming again. I realized that for me to dream about this place, I had to also dream for myself as one of your pastors. What role do I play in the dream? How could I help this amazing group of people pursue the dreams that God has for us? How does God want this church to be? How will we pursue our dreams, our visions, knowing that some of them might not come to fruition as we had expected or hoped? Will we be disappointed? Will we give up dreaming? 
The Isaiah text, Isaiah 43, was a surprise to me that it was in the lectionary this week because it is one of my favorite texts. I have often read this text to people when they are going into surgery or at very difficult times in their life. And I have substituted for Jacob's name, their name. I would read it such as this. But now, says the Lord, the Lord who created you, East Chestnut Street, Mennonite Church, the Lord who formed you, my brothers and sisters here in this fellowship of believers, do not fear For God has redeemed you. God has called you by name. You are God's. Now the phrase, I have called you by name, is one that we have changed culturally, or at least as a different cultural understanding from the Old Testament understanding of name. See, naming a child or a person or even a place was very, very important I'm reading the Bible again through this year, and so I'm in Genesis, and I'm amazed at how often there's footnotes as to when a person is named or when a well is named or when anything is named, there's always a footnote that explains what the Hebrew meaning of that word is, because there was such value, such meaning to every name that was given in the Old Testament, and it wasn't just something that you put on a name tag to wear. They were references to who this person was that represented the nature of the person. And think about the names of God, all the names of God throughout the Bible that convey the fact that God is trustworthy, true, faithful, reliable, just, and good. So it is that the prophet notes, Isaiah says, that when God says, I have called you by name, God also adds to that, you are mine. For the people of God to be called by name means that they belong to God. They are ruled by God, as we shall hear, and they are called by God's name. And such a wonderful tie-in to our Luke passage then, when God calls Jesus by name and identifies him as God's beloved son, the one with whom God is well pleased. Do you hear the echo from Isaiah? to the words of the baptism of Jesus. But Isaiah's promises continue. When you pass through the water, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of all the earth, your Savior. I thought about it a lot this week that it seems like this text, this word, these words from Isaiah are like a love letter from God to God's people. A letter that reminds us that even in our darkest moments, when God, that God has indeed created us, each as individuals, but also as this congregation. Because of God's creation in each of us, we all have opportunity to bring glory to God by worship by loving one another, and by using our energies and talents. Today, I invite us to not only think of these words for ourselves as individuals, but to think of them for us as a congregation, 
And I hope this week that you will seriously take this text, this Isaiah text, it's only seven verses, and I invite you to read through the text, and instead of Jacob or Israel, both referring to Jacob and the country, uh, I mean the land, the people who followed him, um, I would encourage you to put your name in there. And then reread it again and put East Justut's name in there and see what happens to you as you read this love letter to us. But even though God created us as individuals and as a congregation with joy and delight, none of us live perfectly, nor do we live in a perfect world. So the Isaiah text is also a tough text because it reminds us of the imperfections in our lives. It reminds us of the fire and flames that we walk through. It reminds us of sometimes the deep, overwhelming waters that feel like we can barely stay on top of to get a breath of air. And as a congregation, we have walked through some pretty tough times, from deaths to disagreements over church politics, theology, biblical interpretation, use of money, some personal conflicts that have been painful, to decisions about green curtains, shutters, air conditioning, carpeting, pianos, to discernment on church leadership, conference politics, or broader church connections. We have been through much, and sometimes we wondered if we would indeed get burned by the fire, if we would indeed drown. And yes, we lost some members through some of these hot topics, But my hope is that we stayed focused on God and opened ourselves to seeking God's vision for our church. It's not always easy when you feel like you're being burned or walking through the deep waters. My second year of seminary, I had the pleasure of doing an internship at College Mennonite Church in Goshen, Indiana. It's a huge church, 1,200 members. And one of the things that I did for part of my internship was I had a list of people in the retirement homes that I would visit regularly. And one of the persons was Ross Bender. Now, Ross is a uh, well-known figure in the world of Mennonite education. He was dean of Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary in most of the 60s and the 70s. And I think, and probably somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, he was the first Mennonite to receive his Ph.D., Does anybody know if that's true? That's not true. Okay, I'm getting... You might have been the first MC Mennonite. How about that? Anyway, (laughs) we won't go into politics here. But anyway, he he is a very well-respected and very thoughtful and very down-to-earth man. And so I was a little intimidated when I walked in my first visit to Ross. But over time, he became... Pastors aren't supposed to have favorites. But he became my favorite person to visit And I loved meeting with Ross because we engaged so well about biblical stuff. We talked about life. We talked about past life. We talked about future life. And soon I began sitting with with Ross every time I had a sermon. And we would look at the text together. And we would dive in together. And so here I was, blessed with this amazing theologian and scholar who would help me with each of my sermons And then after we were all done, he goes, well, I think you have plenty there. You came up with a lot of good things. And he would always 
admit as though he never did anything, and he said, I can't wait to hear the sermon next Sunday. And so it was always so inspiring to be with Ross. And one of my last visits with him during my, my internship, I was putting my coat on to leave, and he had his walker, and he stood up and he said, Sue, I know in seminary you're often starting to look at for pastoral positions at this point, for jobs and things. Where do you think you're going to, you know, where are you heading? Where, what kind of church, are churches coming and talking to you yet? Well, the fact of the matter is, all of my male peers had already had multiple contacts, but I had not received one contact from any church at this point. And it was actually kind of a sore note for me. Ross didn't know that. And I told him, no, nothing, nothing at all has come up yet. And Ross just stood there, leaning on his walker, and he said, there will be a place for you. There will be a place for you, I am sure. And I left his room that day, and those words resonated in my mind. The next fall, I was having a class with Nelson Crable, and one of the assignments was to share a story over the past two years of our seminary experience of somebody who was very pivotal, somebody who was influential in encouraging us to continue on our call from God. So I told my story of Ross to the, to the classroom, and I started to cry when I told that story because I still hadn't known yet where I was going, although Glenn Kett was still calling me at that point. But I still didn't know where I was going and what was going to happen at that point, and so it was a very difficult time still for me. At the, towards my graduation in May 2005, I decided to go back and pay Ross a visit. And he was older and more debilitated, but very sharp, very sharp, as he always was. I said, Ross, I have something very important I need to tell you. And he said, what is that? I said, do you remember um, over a year ago when you asked me where I was going? And I had just finished telling him all about East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, and he told me everything about you all because he knew it all. And I told him how I didn't have anything And I said, you told me some words that have always remained with me that were so reassuring. And he looked at me and he said, I don't remember saying that, but I believe I did because it's true. And then he stopped and he said, you know, every time I ride in and out of this place, Greencroft Retirement Community, there's a sign that says, retirement with a purpose. Now I know that those words are true. Passing through the difficult waters is a type of baptism all of us make. It is the, the assurance that God is still with you, even when you get to the other side of the waters. And so sometimes going through the waters and arriving on the other side can cleanse us in a way that strengthens our faith and reminds us, as God did when Jesus was baptized, you are my beloved, with you I am well pleased. A few years ago, in a hot summer day in South Florida, a little boy decided to go for a swim in the, swim in the water behind his house. And before he could even take off his shirt and shoes, he was running out to the, through the yard and dove in and was swimming fast. And his dad came behind him and was kind of keeping an eye on him. And then all of a sudden, as his boy was swimming ferociously towards the middle of the lake, his father saw an alligator 
swimming towards the shore. The father yelled as loudly as he could to the boy to get to come closer. And finally, the boy heard his father and didn't quite know what was happening. So he turned and made a U-turn and was swimming back to his father, who was frantically waving him in on the shoreline. But it was too late. Just as he had reached his father with his arm, the alligator had reached the boy's legs. And they began an incredible tug of war between the alligator and the father. The alligator, of course, was much stronger than the father, but the father was much too passionate to let go. A farmer, serendipitously perhaps, happened to be driving by and heard the screams and the commotion and came from his truck and took out a pistol that he had and he shot the alligator. Remarkably, weeks after in the hospital, the little boy survived. His legs were extremely scarred from the alligator and vicious attack. Of course, this made big headlines, and so a newspaper reporter was in the hospital interviewing the boy after the trauma, and he asked him if he would show him his legs where the scars were. And the boy lifted his pants and showed them, but then with obvious pride, he said to the reporter, but let me show you my arms, too. I have great scars on my arms, deep scratches from where my father dug in. I have them because my dad would never let me go. Isaiah's words remind us that as a congregation, we have been created by God who will never let us go. And more importantly, we have been redeemed through God. God will not let us go as long as we continue to seek God's vision for our lives. So as we dream about our future with the important concept of this in mind, I want to share with you some of my dreams. I dream that someday our church will not be so busy, that we will easily be able to identify the things we do well, the things that God has specifically created us to be, and to focus on those things. We do many, many things now, but at times I feel like we're too scattered, that we're doing too much, pleading for help with this worthwhile project, searching for just a few participants more for this worthy event. Can we as a church identify our strengths and our weaknesses, define the things that God has identified in us as part of God's creation of us, and focus on them? And can we find a healthy balance between our work outside of church, our church life, our family life, our social life, our personal life, our spiritual life? How can we strive to find a healthy balance? Where is God calling you in relationship to balance as part of the larger church? This week I had dinner with Rebecca Waybright, and I didn't tell her what my sermon was about so much, but we were talking about church life, and Rebecca said she has a dream, and I loved it, and so I want to share it with you. She said, I'd like to have a year that we don't have any committees, we don't have any meetings, we don't have any activities that the church does. The only thing that we do as a church is we meet in each other's homes to eat together. 
for a whole year. I wonder, I see you all laughing like, oh yeah, well who would teach Sunday school and who would run church board meetings? And I don't know. It's an outrageous idea, but what, does, what would happen? I told Rebecca that I knew of a church just a few years ago that when their lead pastor went on sabbatical, the church decided to go on sabbatical too. And, and this was approved by the pastor. But what that meant is that they did not have any committee meetings. They did not do any work of the church besides worship during those three months. They survived just fine. Um, I wonder if we could do it for a year. I wonder what we would learn about each other and about God. It might give us an opportunity, as, um, as Annabelle said, to hear how God is working in our lives. Diana Butler Bass, in her book, Christianity for the Rest of Us, which a number of you read for an elective Sunday school um, a year or two ago, studied mainline Protestant churches that are growing, even when many mainline Protestant churches in this post-Christendom world are dying or closing. And over three years of research, Diana Butler Bass came to a discovery. She went to the churches that were thriving and vital and said, what are you doing? And what they found is that when congregations interconnected practice, tradition, and wisdom intentionally, they became more vibrant. Now, practices are not necessarily programs, but they are things that Christians do to meet the fundamental needs and serve God's kingdom in the world. What is it that we do here that has changed your life and the congregational life in the past five to ten years? Has it been hospitality? Has it been theological reflection? Has it been embracing diversity? And there are many, and no one way is right. But the most vibrant and vital congregations that Butler Bass found chose two or three, sometimes not consciously, and they practiced them with depth and insight, and they focused on them. They didn't try to do everything well and be all things to all people. Instead, they focused on just a few. And most likely, those were the things that God had called them to do. My vision is that we keep working at the spiritual practices that push us. Butler Bass's book encourages us to find two spiritual practices, like hospitality or intercessory prayer or peacemaking or forgiveness, that our church does well. And then we should continue to do them well. And she says our church will grow. Now, this dream isn't a dream about numbers. Although as a pastor, I'm always excited to see more new people at church. But it's a dream about doing what we do well and what God has called us to do well. I invite us as a congregation to dream, to pay attention to our nighttime dreams and to listen to the dreams and visions of those around us. What practices currently shape our communal life together? What do we share in community? What do we do well and what can we do better? And when we get lost in the fires of life, in the fires of church politics or church business or church work, and we forget what we have been called to do or what we have been called to be or even who called us, We can go back to the waters, not to be overcome by the waters and the fear, or to feel like we will drown, but to go back and realize that the fire, like the refiner's fire, 
can cleanse us and refine us. And the waters that we go through will be like a baptism of God's spirit, reminding some of us of our first baptism. God's promise is that God will always be with us. Now, there's no indication that Jesus knew when he went to be baptized by John the Baptist that there would be this sound and light show that occurred from the sky upon his baptism. He simply went with the rest of the crowd to be baptized. And then came the voice. God acknowledges God's son and says, I'm pleased with you. Our baptism, no matter what form it takes, is much the same. What does God say to us? God says, you are my child. I am pleased with you. Now get on with it. And that's when Jesus' ministry began. We all should now be off and running as baptized disciples of Jesus. We have a great idea, a huge mission, and an enormous target audience. What more do we want What are we waiting for? Let us pay attention to where God is leading us. Let us wear our baptisms daily. And let us go forth. Up front here, you've noticed perhaps that I've had a flame that comes and goes, which I hope represents the fire that I discussed. And I also have a bowl of water. I know not all of us are baptized, But for those of you who are baptized, I invite you to come forth. And I invite all of you to come forth. Those who have been baptized at any point in your life, I invite you to come forth and touch the water, a reminder of the water of baptism. And take some water and make the sign of the cross on your forehead, a reminder of God's blessing to you. For those of you who have not been baptized, you too are very welcome to come. God's promise is for you and touch the water and make the sign of the cross. There's water here and over on the two sides, and there's water in the back, so you can go to any of the four stations if you feel comfortable. You don't have to do this. But all of you are invited to come to the waters of cleansing of God.